God's people do want to be faithful to the Lord. I mean, it's part of the Spirit's renewing work in our hearts that, that we would long to serve God at least the best that we can. There are, however, um, a stack of difficulties that face us in that endeavor. Primarily, as we think about Jude verse 8, there is the twofold problem that the world is complex and that we are often tempted by sinful desires. In terms of the world's complexity, we often find ourselves wishing that, that we could just know what God would have us do, specifically in, in whatever situation we find ourselves right now. Uh, God's word, however, can be very general. Right? Paul wrote in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 7, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Right, but that doesn't tell us much about, it gives us principles, but it does not tell us much about what to do when we're trying to pick a career path or decide about getting married or navigating how to raise children or what to do about a difficult friend. It it rather leaves us with those principles rather than specific direction, what we do here and now. And often, we wish that, I mean, certainly, we wish that God would just appear and let us know what to do so that we would be faithful to him in our given circumstances and know exactly what he would have for us. On the other hand, in addition to that, we also battle against the lingering lust of our flesh. Sometimes we rejoice. We have great victory in in this regard. Other times, we have to admit, I think, that we would be very happy if we could find some sort of reason to excuse or to justify what we want to do. We may even find ourselves looking for a a theological excuse for a wrong desire. And Jude, verse 8, takes us right into the heart of these issues. In this verse, Jude addressed how the ungodly people who had crept into the church were appealing to new revelations from God in order to defend and justify their sinful practices. Jude, as as we'll remember, is a book about 
perseverance in the faith. And, and the central exhortation of, of the whole book is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, and this contending is necessary because ungodly people had infiltrated the church and were teaching to distort grace and reject Christ. And so, so Jude began his letter with the admonition to contend for the faith and, and pointed out that the false teachers in the church were destined for condemnation. And in verses 5 to 7 that we discussed last time, he, he showed how God had exercised this same kind of destruction before on those with, within the church, on angels who rebelled, and even upon prestigious cities. And now in verse 8, Jude continued to, to demonstrate why those false teachers would be destroyed. Namely, because they defended the freedom to sin. So our main point, to bring all this together and then move us ahead, the main point is that we must contend for the faith, we must contend for the faith, by depending on God's revealed will in Scripture to guide our lives. We must contend for the faith by depending on God's revealed will in the Scripture to guide our lives. The first point to help us consider this is the denials. The denials. So, so this point unpacks uh, Jude 8 itself. Uh, before we, we move in the next points to, to try to show how this is still so very relevant and applicable now. So we're, we're picking apart this verse and just getting a hold of what he says. Uh, namely, we will see how the false teachers deny the sufficiency of God's word, deny the abiding value of the law, and deny Christ's authority. So there's three denials there. The denial of the sufficiency of the scripture, the abiding value of the law, and Christ's authority. Now, verse 8 begins, in like, yet in like manner, which, which links Jude's point here to the ways that Jude has, had just talked about the rebels in the church, the rebellious angels, and the rebellious cultures in verses 5 to 7. And so, so there is then a similarity, a similarity between those examples and these false teachers that have crept into the church. They are doing this in like manner. And Jude describes them as these people relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So the, the similarity between these things, between the preceding three examples... And these false teachers, in, in their actions of defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming the glorious ones, 
those are like the rebellion that we saw last time. And before, before, yeah, the the focus of the verse certainly seems to be on, on those three actions, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming these glorious ones. Um, before we get to that, though, I, th- I think we have to play, pay close attention to that little phrase, relying on their dreams. Right? In, in this context here, uh, dreams are not simply stories that our brains play out as we sleep. But these are intended to be revelations from God. So, so, so this particular kind of dream meant here is, is supposed to be an inspired vision from the Lord. So the same word uh, appear, for dreams uh, appeared in the Greek translation of Jeremiah twenty three twenty five. I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. And here, those in view are clearly claiming, in, in Jeremiah, are clearly claiming to have messages from God, prophecies through their dreams, but were in fact lying. We, we read Deuteronomy 13, as well, how sometimes dreamers who claim messages from God uh, among God's people and they seek to lead them astray. Despite the claim that these dreamers heard from God, God's people are meant to continue following the Lord according to His word. Right? Deuteronomy 13.4 You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. And you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Follow Me in the ways that I have revealed in My Word. Not things that someone has just come to you as if by a dream. In Jude's case here, The false teachers were claiming to have inspired dreams from God as well. And by, by relying, so yeah, you've got the sort of odd phrase of just relying on their dreams. I I think you can legitimately insert the word by at the beginning of that. By relying on these supposed visions from God, they were claiming to have divine authority behind the things that they were teaching. And so whereas um, sometimes genuine Christians stumble into unfaithfulness by acting inconsistently with the truth that we know, and that does happen. right? But in contrast to that, these teachers claimed inspired dreams to support immoral practices with genuinely corrupt teaching. This wasn't an accident. This is what they want. And they were claiming that God told them to say. In other words, the, the false teachers claimed that God told them 
that their immoral practices were acceptable, if not good. They, they used supposed new revelation to defend practices that God's word does not permit. In all three immoral practices that, that Jude names in the rest of this verse, which, which the false teachers used the claim of, of dreams from God to defend, all three of those undermine our responsibility to pursue holiness according to God's revealed will. So the first there, uh, we have a, three sort of line items. So the first, defile the flesh, uh, is about the, the sensuality, most likely sexual impurity, that Jude named for us in verse 4. So, so he gave us two things uh, that these teachers were doing in verse 4, perverting, God's grace into sensuality and denying Christ. And, and so here, I think we're, we're back to that first one. They claimed that God revealed in dreams essentially how it's acceptable to pursue immorality. Right? Did we say, yeah. No, further, they also reject authority, which is sort of related to the first one. I mean, it, it, so so by rejecting authority, we come, we come to new understanding of of what Jude meant in verse four when when he said that these false teachers deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So so the the word here for authority uh, under underneath our English word authority uh, is derived from the, there are multiple different words for authority, but, but this one is derived from the word Lord. So it's about lordship. And, and the point is, is that this authority is tied specifically to Christ's authority as, and, and his title as the Lord. Right? In, in other words, they hadn't denied Christ by you know, teaching some sort of heresy about who Christ is. They, they hadn't denied that he is God's son or they hadn't denied that he is the savior. They denied that his commands bind us to holiness. And practically speaking, then they deny that he is the Lord of our lives. They reject his authority, right? Which is tied exactly to, to the first thing i god has told me in a dream that i can defile my flesh so i don't have to listen to christ's lordship and lastly they blaspheme the glorious ones which i think the best way to understand that is that they deride and slander the angels now i'm actually very uh, typically, I'm actually very skeptical when, when commentators run uh, quickly to angels as the reference in difficult texts. Um, but in this case, so, so passages like Exodus 15, 11, uh, and then stacks of, of intertestamental literature use this phrase, the glorious ones. Uh, explicitly to refer to angels. So so I think we're on good ground here. 
to think that's what he's after. Now, why does that matter? Um, and, and I think this is important to, to the overall point that they are looking for ways to justify what they want to do. The, the slander of angels here relates to the angels' role as, as the ones who handed God's law to his people. So in, in Galatians 3.19, Paul wrote, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise was made. And it, the law, here's the key part, and the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And and so we see there, I mean, explicit New Testament confirmation that the angels are involved in handing God's commands to his people, at least in one instance. And so, through some sort of argument against the angels, these false teachers denigrated the law. The angels are terrible, so we don't need the law that they gave us. These false teachers forged teaching against Christ and his servants, the angels serve Christ, in order to feel free to create whatever standard by which they wanted to live other than God's law. And so this verse comes full circle then. We see the denials that they need God's word because they have dreams. They deny that the law abides to direct our lives and they deny that Christ directs our life for holiness. They deny central tenets about the Christian life. Brings us to our second point. So dreamers, the dreamers. And we've opened up how Jude was continuing his case why God will destroy these false teachers. Right? That that's what he's after the three examples in verses five to seven, that's what he's demonstrating about the teachers in the midst of the church, namely because they have twisted the truth in order to make a a theological reason that they might live godless lives. They rejected Christ's authority and concocted some seemingly theological reasons for pursuing godlessness. And so now in this point, though, we've seen what the text says. We, We need to draw some lines from God's word to our lives today. And we see actually that the same problem essentially plays out now with varying degrees of intensity. We cannot deny that, that it is a powerful thing to think that someone has personally heard from God. That, that is the reason why the false teachers argued that they had received some new revelation in dreams. If true, right, which is an important qualifier to underline, if true, like, there's no more powerful point of appeal than God told me. 
And Christians, right, this is powerful even for us, Christians know that we should not argue with God. So if God has said it, well, that's it. That's the final word. And there are a few ways that this exercises hold on the church today. Now, first, sort of more, yeah, the approach here is to start further away and then draw the lines closer to home. So first, there are some who who still make the same kind of claim today, namely that they have received new revelations from God. Okay, and in in the charismatic movement, um, there is a spectrum of uses along these lines. And I, I think we do have to admit that. There is a spectrum of the way that this plays out. On the, on the milder end, right, people claim to hear from God about even just the things of like how to apply Scripture or about guidance for their lives. I, I, I don't know that that undermines, you know, morality in, in the same way that the issues in Jude are. And that is the milder end. On the darker end of the spectrum, some prosperity teachers, right, are going to claim revelations about the future, how if you give money to them conveniently, you will be blessed, or even about how they are free to live their lives in a less than moral fashion. And in this darker side of the charismatic movement, which is not all charismatics, there is often a claim to have heard God speak and give them direction about things that Christians consider less than biblically faithful. So, there is still in some circles the the claim... Um, to the the same, in fact, abusive claim to have received divine revelation, and that claim can exercise a significant hold on, on people who truly love the Lord, uh, wish they could hear from their God, whom they love. That claim can gather fame and fortune for the person who milks it, Precisely because it takes advantage of trusting believers who are not discerning enough to see the falsehood of of the teaching. Now, hopefully it's useful for us to be aware of that same sort of issue, uh, even as it kind of is, is there outside of our own circles. But... There are genuine ways in which I think the same principle affects us closer to home as well. And and we are not here to criticize, but to grow. And so we need to give equal, if not more, attention to how this lands with us. I, I, we have to admit that the world is a difficult place to live as a Christian. And right now, I don't mean... The cultural lament. That's not what I mean right now. But 
but simply the, the universal truth that things in the world are hard. Disease, finance, worry, and so many other things can plague our minds into the latest hours of the night. The, the world is difficult. There are many situations that it is hard to know the best thing to do. Especially, especially when we are seeking to, to make those decisions in faithfulness to God. In, in that tension of the world, regardless of what we think about ongoing special revelation, in that tension, it, it is very easy to wish for, even if you think it, even if you know it's not going to happen, it's still very easy to wish that God would just speak to us and tell us what to do. Right? Let us, let us know what you want. That, that would make things very easy. And it's, not uh, perhaps not unnatural to wish that that could just could happen and the problem is then for us is then in how we respond to that desire i think it's not a weird thought to say god i just wish you would tell me but but what do we do following upon that are are we going to accept that we live as pilgrims in a foreign land, not yet home, and so need to follow the, the principles of wisdom that God has given in his word and th- by the, the counsel that we get from friends and spiritual leaders. Are we, are we going to respond by leaning into those things or are we going to pretend that we can have more certainty than then we are able. Even in Reformed churches where we do not believe that God still provides new special revelation through dreams, I I genuinely think that there, there is a way that we can still drift toward a, a mystical version of certainty that God has not actually offered us in this age. I, I think the easiest way that we baptize our quest for illegitimate certainty about how to live in the world is, is by saying that we've prayed about something and have peace about it. Some, no. The, the qualifying preface on that is sometimes that's a hundred percent right. So that's not a, an assault on prayer and peace. If we are in need of, of new work or some very pointed provision and we are praying about it and even though it has not yet come, we, we find ourselves at peace. Well, then God has kept his promise. Of Philippians 4, 6, that when we pray, the peace that surpasses all understanding will fill our hearts. So sometimes that's exactly right. On the other hand, right, it, we find ourselves in these situations where a, a decision is debatable at best. 
in its faithfulness. Um, or perhaps a decision in which we should have sought uh, and consulted more wise counsel. But we were afraid that perhaps they might tell us to do what we don't want to do. And so we shrug those things away by by saying that we have peace because we prayed. That's simply a, although it's much milder, it's simply a milder version of the same problem in Jude. If if a Christian uh, decides to date someone whom they shouldn't, an unbeliever, or leave their husband or wife without biblical cause because they prayed and had peace, well, then that is an illegitimate claim to certainty from God being used to justify what we want. Dreamers who who lead God's people uh, astray come in all sorts of appearances and on a spectrum of intensity and yet all in all circumstances an illegitimate appeal is made to receiving certainty from God to justify our poor or sinful desires. That brings us to our third point, dependence. So how, how should we approach morality or, or even certainty in our wisdom decisions? And I think, right, this is gonna, this is gonna sound better as we expand the application. But I think the first thing that we have to conclude is that we have to abandon our hope for certainty. This is the age of faith, not the age of sight. And we live in that tension. So, you hear me clearly, the, the point is not we abandon hope. The point is that we abandon hope for certainty. We love the idea that we could come to firm knowledge of what God wants us to do. I get that. I mean, how how could we not wish for that? But when we read the Scripture, we have to realize God could have written as much as He wanted. He was not limited to the 66 books we have. And God has told us everything that He wishes us to know for this age. And so, it is sufficient for us. Even when that that tests our comfort, and we wish we had more, we give ourselves into the hands of our loving God on this point, that what He has said genuinely is sufficient. He could have told you more. He didn't. 
that that's not a bad thing. It means what he's told you is enough. So, rather than questing after the certain knowledge of God's will for every detail of our lives, we ought to seek after a fixed dependence upon his word and upon his people who belong to his word. There is a reason why we will never be entirely settled in this life. And the scripture promises us that. And and it is not uh, that uh, there's a problem. We'll never be settled here because this age is not our home. We, we have to come to grips with the fact that we are pilgrims in this land. You may have been born three blocks from where you live. You are a pilgrim if you are a Christian. This is our pilgrimage. We are travelers. And we have to learn in that, given that, we have to learn to find ourselves increasingly more at ease, at ease with living within the bandwidth of wisdom rather than certainty. And, and we can grow in our comfort with living within the circle of wisdom when we realize that it, it is not because something is wrong that we don't know God's exact will for our lives. It is because that is not what belongs to this age. And I think this becomes more, pos- more positive. Uh, I realize I've taken something away, the hope of certainty. But I hope what I'm about to try to give you is better because you can't have the the other one and we're just being clear about it. I hope what, I hope we realize that what we can have is better. Because, right, rather than, sometimes I think, yeah, the motivation behind the hope for certainty is that we'll pray and God will, will tell us. Or give us that mystical peace that pushes us the right direction. Uh, and I imagine one of the things is, well, then why would I pray if I can't have that certainty? And I, th- I think that that's actually the wrong way around. Because rather than praying less, rather than praying less because we can't be certain, we pray more because we seek for ever increasing amounts of wisdom. We can never be full of wisdom. And so the quest for wisdom, according to God's word about what to do here and now, drives us to pray more than the quest for concrete certainty. That has an end point to your prayers. I'm certain I can stop praying. 
or I'm frustrated that I'm not certain, so I stop praying. The quest for wisdom means you never stop praying. There's always more wisdom to be had. Right? And, and, and perhaps with, I mean, I hope that pushes you to pray more as an application, but something that perhaps less generic, um, we also, in light of that, find ourselves, should find ourselves leaning more upon Christian friends and our church elders in light of this view of the world because there with our Christian friends and spiritual leaders, we find not certainty, but helpful counsel about how to apply and live out the principles of God's word in any given situation. Someone who has lived the life of wisdom and is further down the road or has lived a different path of wisdom in situations that I've not encountered, but they have, can speak from their grounding in God's word into our situation. And so this pushes us not into the mystical search for certainty, but into the community of God, where God has indeed kept his promises to use his word, to sanctify his people, to grow us in wisdom, to help us as we live. And we don't have to do that by ourselves. We draw upon the people around us, the leaders God has appointed in our churches, the friends that he has given us who are faithful to the Lord to speak. And so far, far from unsettling, our lack of certainty is settling because it puts us with God's people. It settles us to each other. I can't find what I should do by myself. And as, I mean, right, as the example, I, concretely, I can't find what to do by myself. I need you. To traverse through this pilgrim land to which I don't belong. And you are in the same situation. And so we, we find ourselves delighting all the more in what we can know. Namely, those things that God has clearly said to us. The things that are written. Those things upon which we can have absolute dependence. Especially the promises of the gospel. There are many things that we don't know. There are things that are unclear on their own in the scripture. God has been clear and direct that 
Christ died to forgive your sins. It is revealed beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Son of God assumed a human nature for your salvation. God has not left it to our dreams, but God has promised, recorded it in His Word, sealed it by covenant, guaranteed that those who trust in the Savior will find forgiveness, acceptance, and grace. And so, we lean into the promises, trusting in what God has said and finding ourselves content with what we know in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, it is easy that we, for us to wish that we could depend upon our dreams. As if you would tell us what investment to make, what instruction to give to our children, what advice to give uh, to our families, what studies to undertake for our future, where we might look to find a husband or wife. It's easy to wish you would just tell us. But we give ourselves into your hands, knowing that what you have said is sufficient, knowing that you have told us enough for everything that you would give us to do here in this world. And knowing that we are not left on our own, but indeed we have, we have this immense gift of prayer, not as a quest for certainty, but as a relationship in, in which we find ourselves growing in wisdom. And we have one another. We have our church. We have our friends here. We have our elders here to guide us in what we might do as we walk with you. We pray that we would treasure these things. It's easy to set that aside and, and just focus on the longing for certainty. But God, help, help make this a place where we lean into these things. That we are people of prayer as we seek wisdom and that we are people who are for one another. That this is a community where we are seeking to bear one another's burdens, whether that be pointed needs or just the burdens of walking through a life in a land that is not our own. Bless us as we seek to be a church, a a united church who is faithful to you. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.